It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Outward, Slate's monthly show about all things LGBT. Whether your ideal date is just with yourself, in a couple, in a thruple, or in a quadruple, sorry, I just like I'm not a numbers person. Oh, good, good. Well, I'm Jules Gill Peterson, and honestly, no matter how many people I'm dating at any given time, I'm always the center of attention. Hmm. Weird how that happens. Yeah. Hmm. I'm Christina Cotarucci. I'm a senior writer at Slate and currently recovering from a really sexy winter cold this mm. month. I'm Brian Lauder, a editor at Slate, uh, and I just got over my fourth round of COVID. So oh my I God, Brian. I feel you, Christina, on the, on the winter bugs for sure. Well, if it's not viruses, maybe love is in the air this month, listeners. I feel like love is in the air, or I don't know, maybe I accidentally up my estrogen dosage. It's it's either that, <laughs> or I think it's that we're coming to you on the heels of St. Valentine's Day herself. Mm-hmm. So Brian, Christina, and I wanted to turn our attention to some very queer questions about love. First, we'll talk about a new Spanish film that actually has a French title, Petit Mal. Yes, like the famous type of seizure. Uh, This is a film that explores the intimate drama and everyday feelings of three queer women in a throuple. And honestly, this film has everything you need for a reflection on modern queer love. Okay, (laughs) there are at least three dogs, including a very- Five, there are five dogs. Oh my God, there's five dogs? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm so homophobic, I couldn't tell some of them apart. Well, one of them is a naughty dachshund named Greta. Uh, There are Instagram stories fueling jealousy. There's utter confusion when three people are all calling each other by the same pet name, Amor, uh, without being clear who's ever being talked to. Uh, and, And well, actually, I don't know if there even is an actual throuple sex scene in the movie. But in any case, we should talk about all of that. Mm hmm. And then we'll consider arguably the hardest kind of love that there is. I'm talking about coming to love or be at peace with yourself, especially in the wake of great loss or pain. In recent years, we've seen huge growth in the application of psychedelic drugs as a treatment strategy for PTSD, depression, anxiety, and more. And although psychedelics are becoming more popular with everyone, a lot of queer and trans people have our own pretty unique and often pre-existing relationships with some of these substances, both in a recreational and a therapeutic context, or maybe in the interesting place where the line between those blurs a little. Mm -hmm. So we're really excited to be joined uh, this month 
by Dr. Alex Belser, truly the leading researcher into queer people's relationship with psychedelics, who has decades of clinical and research experience specifically on what these drugs might offer and also get back from us queers in something even like a liberatory sense. So whether you've had plenty of psychedelic experience or maybe you're just ketamine curious, you won't want to miss this fascinating conversation. And as always, we will share our prides and provocations and our updates to the gay agenda. But first, Christina, do we have anything from our thoughts and queries inbox? We were so thrilled to have a whole bunch of responses in our inbox to our drag episode. It warmed our cold little queer hearts. Uh, We loved hearing your voices, especially. We got a couple great voice memos. Um, I wish we had time to play them all, but here's a really sweet story that we received from a listener named Erin. Hi, Outward Podcast. I just wanted to call in as a parent and a theater scholar practitioner who has been taking my kids to drag queen events uh, really since before they were born. Um, I was at the New York City Boylesque Festival eight months pregnant with my son, and he has been going to drag shows since he was in utero. Um, My daughter saw her first drag queen story hour when she was really little, um, and we even did virtual drag queen story hours during uh, lockdown because she was just absolutely obsessed with drag queens. Um, She's five years old now, and for her fourth birthday, I asked her what she wanted for her birthday, and she said she wanted a drag queen. Um, So we actually hired a local drag queen to come and do a drag queen story hour at her fourth birthday. It was amazing. She came, she read Julian is a Mermaid, she sung Happy Birthday, she took pictures with some of the kids. All of the parents were thrilled and, you know, she was tipped very well for posing for pictures with all of the kids and their families. Um, And for a lot of the kids, it was their first ever exposure to a drag queen. And my daughter was just like, oh, I've been seeing drag queens forever. Her goal when she grows up is to be a purple drag queen. Um, That has been her her big dream since she was about three, was to be a purple drag queen. Erin, thank you so much for that voice memo. Your kid sounds so cool. If you have a thought or query for us, and I'm pretty sure you do... You can always reach us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. You know, we especially love to hear your beautiful voices. So send us your voice memos if you're so inclined. And if not, a cute little email will do. All right. Now it is time, as always, for our monthly prides and provocations. Um, Just as a reminder, since we maybe have some new listeners in the new year, Prides and provocations are when we look at the community and either find ourselves proud of something and share that with the group, or provoked by something in the style of Bette Porter's infamous art show in the L Word called Provocations. So Jules, why don't you start us off this month? Are you proud or provoked? Uh, well, I guess I'm provoked. Uh-huh. Um, there's some pride snuck in. So I'm provoked by the straights, I guess. Or by, not even the straights, sorry, sorry, straights. I'm provoked by just the lazy, phone-it-in, low-energy satanic panic uh, over Sam Smith and Kim <laughs> Petras's Grammy performance of that apparently hit song, Unholy. Like, whatever. Apparently hit song. I'm sorry. I don't like that song. It just, like, musically does 
absolutely nothing for me. Maybe it's because I was not raised Christian. And so, you know, it's not like sexy for me. But like, I, you know, I'm a perfectly real fan of, you know, Kim Petras and Sam Smith, you know, with certain asterisks overall. But anyways, you know, they had this moment at the Grammys and like, of course, you know, they shared a win and that was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was just like the usual lazy, lazy, lazy Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh types being like, this is Satan. But it's like, as was pointed out by other people, Sam Smith is literally wearing a Party City devil <laughs> costume mm-hmm. that costs like $2. Like, honey, I'm sorry. I need more. If you're giving, if you're going to come with satanic panic, like you really got to try a little bit harder. It's so boring and embarrassing to be like, it's gross when queer people and trans people and non-binary people do things because they must really want to seduce our children from the devil. Like wish it were so honey. It wasn't that avant-garde of a performance. Like it was perfectly fine. Again, I think there are better candidates for satanic panic. No, really. I just think satanic panic is lazy and gross and, I don't know. There's just so much bound up in that. Like, I'm so tired, you know, just to be provoked by the gays for a moment. So tired of people's nonsense about how Sam Smith looks, dresses, their body. Like, absolutely everyone can sit down and shut up about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. Like, I just want to draw the little dotted line. Please don't have a gay satanic panic over a person's body. Okay? Let them be sexy. Let them do their thing. And let's all just relax a little and figure out what's really worth, um, you know, having a moral panic over, which is uh, not us. But do let them get better outfits. I like the party city. I'm sorry, it was not that. The party good. city industry. If you're going to do that, you need to really summon your clothes from the halls right? of pandemonium itself. Like it needs to <laughs> come up from the ground and wrap around you. Yeah, no. And it can be done. Like the the SNL performance Sam Smith and Petrus did a few weeks earlier was great. Like Smith yeah, was in yeah. this gigantic like. I don't know, vaginal gown and, and mm-hmm. like gave birth to Kim Petras. That was great. I liked that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was yeah. creative. Also, just uh, as somebody who was raised Catholic and does have a passing familiarity with the Bible, um, I'm pretty sure when Satan appears, he's usually, it's usually in like insidious ways. Like he doesn't come out dressed in like horns and a tail <laughs> and with like flames behind him. It's like he's the like sly person trying to convince you to, you know, betray somebody or do something wrong. So The most beautiful angel, famously. Oh right. yeah, that too. Yeah, oh my God. Oh yeah. Who am I kidding? Mm-hmm. Brian is way better at this than I am. Christina, what do you have? I'm proud this month. <laughs> It's a little bit of a shady pride, but it's pride nonetheless. Um, So in late January, Lex, the erstwhile dating and hookup app for queer women and trans people, uh, underwent a redesign. So it used to be like a really simple interface, sort of meant as an homage to queer personals ads Mm -hmm. from the pre-internet days. You could like do a couple things on it. You could link your Instagram account. You could react and respond to ads. That was kind of it. Now, you know, it's more colorful. You can create a group chat, make a little bit more of an involved profile with some stuff about yourself, a photo. Nothing too wild. But somebody found, because we're so, (laughs) queers are uh, notoriously good at Googling, somebody found the website of the design firm that did the overhaul and the rebranding. And they featured Lex on the site as like a client case study. This is the way they described it. 
Lex came to us for a rebrand to help them move from being perceived as a queer space for romantic relationships towards a queer space for platonic relationships. Ah, mm-hmm. So understandably, a lot of queers were offended or taken aback or miffed that Lex would tell them to stop being so horny. And indeed, pretty much all the new promotional images for the app that show sample Lex posts are kind of hilariously not horny. For example, (laughs) bring binoculars to your queer birding group. Trans femme book lover from Portland seeking trans owned shops to host my book club. Stone Butch Batty from Texas looking for a workout buddy to lift weights with, which... Excuse me? <laughs> also, why do you need your lifting bro to know that you're stone? It was like, it's a weird combination of sexual and not sexual, but mm-hmm, you know what? Mm-hmm. I am proud of Lex, despite all the backlash, for recognizing what it is and what it has become and leaning into it. You know, we did a segment on Lex a year or two ago sort of focused on how sad it was that due entirely to users and not the app makers, it had turned from a hub for like sexy personals to a place where people vented about being lonely and depressed. Yeah. And I do know some people who have hooked up through Lex, but it just seems like our community has shown that if you want to make us a hookup app or a dating app, you can't let us post whatever we want. Because a small but vocal segment of us will use it to be a boner kill. So yes, Lex, make it a place designed specifically for the people who are looking for queer friends and community because a lot of people are excited about and looking for that. And the app had been a place for people to post ads for like, hey, this queer bike ride is happening or whatever. But also now it can really be what it wants to be, which is a place for people to post things like, and these are real recent posts, sad and lonely, but also funny and interesting. Or anyone else ever have the kind of self-hatred where they are actually happy when internal anger begins manifesting in headaches and nosebleeds? Oh, goodness. Or the person who said, I got hit by a car. I'm mostly fine. But if anyone wants to come over and kiss me until I feel better, I will accept that. So you know what? I hope those people have fun with their platonic app for sad times. And everyone who wants to flirt and hook up can get on field or something and doesn't mm-hmm. have to be reading posts like that in between the posts for people who want to get fisted. <laughs> here, here. So I'm proud. <laughs> proud of you, Lex. Don't listen to the haters. You know what people were using it for and you gave yeah. it to them. Following, following the customer. Yeah. 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 That makes sense for sure. Brian, how do you feel this month? Um, I am proud. I'm proud specifically of the righteous fight that many in our community have waged successfully against the cutting of Drag Race down to a 60-minute episode. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you followed this, this outpouring. Not even a little bit. Yeah, this outpouring of, of rage, queer rage. But um, uh, when season 15 started this uh, year in January, uh, they, cut it, they cut each episode down from 90 minutes, which is what people have been used to, to 60, which really means 45, right, when you think about commercials. Mm. And this was to accommodate, uh, this is the sort of insult to injury part, this was to accommodate uh, this reality show called The Real Friends of WeHo, which was billed as a uh, Real Housewives kind of reality show. It just follows people around about their kind of influencer lives. 
but it is just the worst possible show. Like, it, and it's it, we won't even gay. It's about gay men. It's right? about gay men in West Hollywood. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like, it, but it's just the emptiest. Like, there's no, you know, all of those shows are sort of vapid, quote unquote. But it, this is like has no chemistry. They don't know each other. It's all completely manufactured. It's just horrible. I'm sure it's not going to be renewed if it's already not been canceled. So because people were mad about that and mad about the the cutting of Drag Race Down, which made it a really incoherent show. I've watched a few episodes and um, the, the runway takes like two minutes. It's like everything's very rushed now. Everybody was writing to MTV, like, complaining about this. There was a petition with, like, 34,000 signatures. Oh, my God. I think. Um, and so, finally, uh, the week that we're recording, it was announced that on March 10th, MTV will be returning Drag Race to its 90-minute uh, wow. episodes. Now, this is great. You know, cheers for the people who like Drag Race. Uh, but part of it is that... Uh, the Real Friends of WeHo was only going to be six episodes anyway. So it may be... It's unclear if they were planning to uh, do the 90-minute edit already or if they were going to keep it 60 and just after the show was over. Unclear. Doesn't matter. Amazing to see direct action in this way <laughs> from the community uh, against a corporation that was uh, ruining our queer fun. Uh, and so I'm proud proud of us for standing up for that. I, like, don't even watch Drag Race that much anymore, but even so, like, congratulations to those people. (laughs) A 90-minute TV show seems so long to me. I've never actually seen Drag Race, but I guess maybe it's warranted? It's warranted, and that doesn't even include Untucked, which is the the sort of after-gossip show that happens. It is warranted because there's so many queens on it now and there's so many challenges and you don't if you don't have time to like appreciate the looks yeah and and the artistry it's a it's a real bummer so Mm. uh, absolutely warranted also it kind of strikes me as funny that mtv was like we only have a certain amount of time that we can put queers on the tv so like if if weho is taking up some we need to take it away from the (laughs) other gay show yeah yeah. It also says something interesting about representation right now. We don't want, apparently, those, that kind of reality show. We want the drag. Ooh, yeah. And I think that's, there's something interesting there. So, well, um, don't something. tell Todrick Hall he'll write another handwritten I note know. and post it on Instagram <laughs> where he has a breakdown in prose over several uh, different yeah. pictures. It's, it's I didn't even want to get into that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I was thinking back recently on our conversation about the movie Bros and also Fire Island um, and what a queer rom-com could look like when the conventions of rom-coms always seem to center on problems related to gender differences or monogamy. Mm. And both of those films that we talked about tried to make the rom-com genre work with some degree of non-monogamy with, I would say, mixed results. Um, But it made me think about how much more there could be to say about queer non-monogamous relationships. If someone wanted to make more of a, let's say, contemplative black and white drama about a specific, realistic, and hot gay polycule. 
Well, my prayers were answered. <laughs> kind of. Petit Mal is a very sparse and quiet Spanish film with a French title about a queer throuple that's destabilized when one of the partners, who turns out to be kind of the anchor of their life together, mm. leaves for a month-long business trip. So actually, though it's a movie about a throuple, for most of it, there's only two people. It's directed by Ruth Cadelli, who stars in the film alongside her two actual partners. Woo. So they're a throuple in real life and in the movie. We'll definitely talk about how that affects our viewing of the film. So Ruth plays Laya, the one who's gone for most of the film. Um, it's in black and white when she's gone because they love her so much. It's like the life is drained out of their world when she's away. And they live in this gorgeous house that is probably only possible because they're a triple income family. Benefits of the thruple. So the two other partners, Anto and Marty, feel alienated from one another at first. Then they kind of bond in Laya's absence. They deal with some jealousy together, too. Uh, as we mentioned before, they have five dogs, I think three of which are naughty dachshunds, two or three. Yeah, you're right. Um, and they just kind of like mope around thinking about their lives together, missing their third person, um, creating their own little inside jokes. It screened at a bunch of festivals last year, and now it's available to rent on Amazon and Apple TV and wherever you rent your things. And the film, I would say, kind of takes as a given that this relationship is interesting and unique enough on its own as a throuple that it warrants a film in which nothing really happens. Mm -hmm. um, and basically that just seeing three women on screen having these tiny little everyday interactions together and responses to each other is saying something and telling us some kind of new story. I kind of think that it did. I don't know. It, it's incredibly subtle and barely there. It might just justify itself because thruples are just so underexplored in mainstream storytelling that I did find it pretty thought-provoking and sweet. But I'm curious what you guys thought. Uh, Brian, let's start with you. Am I, be am I being privileged because I'm in a, I'm in a thruple? Um, yeah, I'm going to tokenize you for a second. That's fine. Uh, I had a really divided reaction to this movie. Um, on the one hand, I thought that it was a really lovely and like I don't know if I want to say realist but like authentic maybe portrait of what a relationship looks like and by that I mean the little small ways in which people who are together speak to each other in funny voices and have all of these funny jokes and act really weird mm -hmm. in a way that you always think would be embarrassing if anyone saw you doing it, right? And that's why it's private inside of your relationship. This is the first movie I can think of, at least in a long time, that really did that, that really, like, was well... And I'm sure that has to do with the people involved actually being in a relationship. It, it sort of felt like that energy was present. So, mm. as an active representation of that, it felt good. That I enjoyed. I am not sure, though, to your point about, you know, that the thruple itself is serious enough to justify this treatment. I don't think it proved mm. that. I found it increasingly tedious as it went on. Like, it, it, there's even a line somewhere where they're like, because there's this, this weird meta thing of someone in the movie is make, making a movie about the thruple. It's like Pomo in that way. And they're like, what's more original than our life? Like, you know, this is like the best possible thing we could be making a movie about. And 
I can't decide if it's radical for a thruple to be boring, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> or or not. But I but I I I didn't find that it was like that fascinating. But that also raises the question of of um, if this is somewhat autobiographical. You, it's weird to argue with with like memoir because it's just memoir. So. I, I, we can put that on the table too. Is like how yeah. do you like? I, I don't feel right complaining about the story exactly because well, you can because it's not. It, it has to justify itself as a piece of art and a narrative. And it's funny because that whole storyline, basically, the only kind of thing that really happens in the film is mm. one of them is making this documentary, and um, producers like who would never appear keep saying like it's not interesting enough give us some conflict like give us something unique and they're yeah as you say keep saying like well what's more what what can be more interesting than our life which must be actually what producers said to Ruth Caudelli about this film because it's I would give the same notes and you know I feel like we've watched a couple queer documentaries where somebody is making a film about like their own family or somebody close to them and I don't think many people do that very well. And I think the mm, film definitely mm. suffered for its inability to like realize that some that like whatever they wrote that was this hyper realist, you know, depiction of two of them alone in a house together was like going to say something interesting. Like Jules, what did you think? Yeah, you know, that that was really the question that emerged for me. I mean, like, look, I think it's, this movie is give, very much giving European art film. Um, yeah. Like, let's just not talk a lot. And when we talk, it can be sort of poetic and kind of ethereal. Yeah. And, and, you know. I wasn't sure whether the subtitles were just bad or whether they were actually speaking in such strange ways. I think they speaking in such strange way. I mean, I don't know, you know, my, my, my Spanish is, you know, treads much more, you know, um, you know, Caribbean and North American and not, you know, from Spain, but yeah, from what I was picking up on idiomatically. But I think the question for me that the film raises, or rather the question I brought to the film was like, what is the, what is the thing that the film is trying to say about what a throttle mm. is, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a question that still remains for me, more broadly speaking, and that this film kind of pushed me to come back to like, you know, I've been in poly relationships, I've, you know, gone on dates where there's like three of us, you know, things like that. I, you know, think that could be really fun. There's lots of reasons I like it. But one thing I'm always trying to think about is like, what is supposed to have changed from couple to thruple? Because like the couple Mm. form, to me, is sure, there's this whole like, heteronormative history of it in terms of gender binary, blah, 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 blah. But to me, I always think about it in terms of class. The couple form is part of the way that, you know, sexuality gets privatized, that we understand our emotional Mm -hmm. lives Mm -hmm. and our domestic sphere as a kind of private refuge from the wear and tear of the public world. And that might be true historically, you know, for straight people, but for queer people, it's very class stratified. There's like middle-class queer people get to have more conventional relationships, have homes that are private spheres and have this kind of like, hey, our love is sort of a refuge from homophobia or transphobia and like poorer working class queer and trans people don't have that. Their lives are more public, their homes are less private. And I think that Mm -hmm. the difference to me is like what those kinds of relationships look like 
when you don't have a beautiful rural house in the <laughs> in the Spanish countryside. Yeah, they so, don't like, interact with the public at all. Right, and which is an right, interesting choice, right? right? Like, yeah. it, it is an interesting choice to say, what if, because I kept being like, I'm so confused. Where are we? Where did, mm-hmm. where did, yeah. you know, the Because I think they live go? in Colombia. In Colombia, They don't yeah. live in Spain in real life. You know, when I was watching the movie, I kept having to be like, okay, chill out, Jules. Because I was like, this is such, like, middle-class, flight of fancy, like, white girl shit, where they're just like, ah, <laughs> making eggs, having a lot of dogs, and then one of me is sad, and the other one is sad. And I was like, I don't understand who these people are. And I kept getting mm-hmm. them confused. I never learned their names, um, which is, like, whatever. But, like, so, so I think that for me, there's this kind of question of, like, is the film trying to tell me that there is something about being in a thruple that's different than being in a couple? Because I'm not sure I think personally that that distinction is that fascinating. It just seems like you could have a couple with more people, right? And that might yeah. be nice. And that might yeah. be a little bit yeah. challenging because it's just logistically more people. Or is it a film about like, just like, you know, how weird it is to be swallowed up in the domestic, you know, as as queer people, because it's actually kind of boring and mundane and not actually as dramatic as we might want. I don't know. I just kind of got lost somewhere in there. It's not a bad thing at all. Um, and I thought it was kind of interesting to hang out with this film for that long, um, it, you know, on those questions for that long, since it doesn't really necessarily like arrive somewhere dramatic at the right. end. So maybe it was just trying to like tell me, like, just sit here and see what happens. But but I was sort of like, mm, yeah, I don't know. You know, it just didn't okay. quite, didn't spark that much for me. If that makes I sense. feel like two things. One, I don't think the film is self-aware enough or the filmmaker talented enough to have this be like a commentary. <laughs> However, I disagree with your feeling that it didn't say anything new about mm. the way that throuples are different from couples. It prompted thoughts in me. I won't say that it like showed me anything that would necessarily mm. take take every person down this route, but for me, like the moments when the three of them were somehow interacting, like with Laya on the phone, mm. um, which it was also about like the alien alienating nature of technology because there's constantly like technology lags and you can't hear what she's saying. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's just about a long distance relationship. The horror of people using Instagram on a desktop, which I've like never <laughs> seen anyone on my life. Instagram <laughs> stories, no less. That was so, so weird. <laughs> yeah. They were queering it. They were um, queering <laughs> But it did, okay, and you know, I've never been in a thruple, although I have thruples in my life. It helped me understand for the first time, maybe, or consider what it might be like for, let's say, in this one moment when they're talking to Laya on the phone and they're kind of mad because she stayed out really late the night Mm. before and didn't call them. They were worried about her. Anto gets kind of upset. And I feel like that freed up Marty to not be as upset, to have Anto kind of like occupy that space for her and for her to almost be like a little bit of a mediator or have a more like muted or understanding reaction. And I was like, oh, I could see this being a way in which throupledom differs from coupledom or the way in which like two people being able to bond over their love for a third person can Mm -hmm. sort of amplify those feelings. Those moments gave me very subtle but thought provoking Mm -hmm insight into what a throuple might be because I do think it is different to have like not just 
individual relationships with two different people, but like a third wholly separate relationship between the three of you. Like that is something that most people don't have experience with that queer people for obvious reasons, because there are only like two binary genders in hetero land. Like obviously if there's a throuple, usually it's going to be queer in some way. Like we have special um, understanding of what that might be like. So I appreciated it for that reason. Brian, what did you feel like you maybe wished or, or would have made it more interesting for you? Again, I, and I feel like this might be like a boring complaint, but I would have liked to have seen, like, so the, the way the movie is structured, basically, it's it's very arty, so uh, it's structured in a lot of different ways. But one of the main things is that there's a lot of flashbacks that are in color to when the throuple is happy, basically. it's the, we, we sort of see them, you know, joking around, having sex a little bit, um, you know, just uh, whatever, doing domestic things and, and, and laughing. On and, trips together. On trips together, yeah, exactly all of that. And all of the sort of present of the film is this crisis, which <laughs> is really a stupid crisis, but like <laughs> where this one of them has gone for a month and uh, oh gosh, what's gonna happen? It's actually really funny when you put it that way. It's a little (laughs) self-serving on Ruth's part to be like, wow, when I left, like, their lives basically stopped. Everything broke down. It stopped. Yeah, and so, I don't know. It's not that I want, like, positive representation, but I just think that what's interesting about the throuple is probably located in all of those flashbacks where Mm. you would see, like, a lot of what life looks like in, in ways that maybe are different from the way... Um, although I take Jules's point to heart, I think, you know, when people ask me, like, about my relationship and how it's different, I really often just say, it's really not. It's like, we are middle-class white gay men, like, there's three of us in this house instead of two. Like, it's it's really just not, because of the reasons that Jules articulated, it's, it's not that radical for us. I, I don't know. I, I wish the movie had spent a little more time in, in those, <laughs> the color sequences, so that we could understand what drew these people together and what what maybe was unique about them before we go into this very um i think kind of uh thin but also the the crisis itself is i think the one that people looking from the outside in it polyamory always expect that like well Mm. you know really there's like jealousy is going to break it apart or only two of them like each other or like yeah 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 yeah, it's not it's not possible actually for this to be stable and i think the movie you know again if it's autobiographical i guess that's what it is but like the movie seems to really lean into just to this idea that like this is a fundamentally fraught relationship when i think it can actually be more stable than uh, dyadic ones for for various Mm -hmm. reasons so um, that's what I would say about like it. Like for what reasons? Like a three-legged stool? Like, like a three-legged, like a, a tripod. <laughs> a tripod is a very stable form. Um, right. I well, you brought up a thing, right? Like so, in, in conflict mitigation, actually, it is absolutely a different experience in, a, in an argument to have a person who maybe isn't imbricated in the argument in the same mm. way that the two people are who can not be objective and you don't want to make anybody a therapist. I think that's a big mistake, but who can kind of maybe look at both sides of a disagreement and, and, uh, add context often. Um, and also support is, both people and support both people. Or sometimes, you know, occasionally be like, no, actually girl, you're wrong. Mm. <laughs> like two, two of us think mm. that you were wrong about this. And that's also, you know, I, to when I'm on, you know, the, the wrong side of that, 
I take it more seriously, I think, oh. than you than you can sometimes. And the one-on-one, there's so much ego involved. But when it's like two people, you're like, well, okay, the sample size here is telling me something. That is different. I mean, I think you're totally right, Christina. Like that scene, one of, I think, the most interesting scenes in the film is this one where, yeah, you know, Laya's been out late and they couldn't get a hold of her. Um, I mean, I really do, I will say, as someone who's in a long-distance relationship, um, it was a really harrowing long-distance relationship <laughs> film. I kept being like, this is making me so sad. But yeah, the scene where they're, you know, trying to call her and they're like, what happened? She's like, whatever, I was out drunk. Why are you two being so annoying? Mm -hmm. And one of the two, you know, who are together, um, you know, leaves the car and the other one where they had been talking to her runs off and huff. Let's hear a clip from that scene. No, pues que, pues sí, no, no me parece la verdad, no me parece justo. O sea, nosotras llevamos todo el día muy preocupadas por ti porque no apareces, te mandamos mensajes, no respondes y no, resulta que es que tú estabas de fiesta y te acostaste y estás durmiendo hasta las 11 de la noche. O sea, pues no. No, pues o sea, eres mi mamá. <risa> no, no soy tu mamá, soy tu novia que está preocupada, pero ¿sabes qué? Todo bien, o sea, yo... You know, there there is something really interesting about those moments. And I think there's also, it's not just like sort of negotiating insecurities and boundaries and all of the kind of, you know, complexities of being in a relationship. But there's also the, then the positive versions of that, you know, I can think of times in my life where I really enjoyed being a part of, you know, more like, you know, polycule in some regard, because it gives you a chance, especially, you know, I was thinking in ways that those can cluster difference. And it really like de-dramatizes the stakes that the person who you're in a relationship with is supposed to somehow address all of you, um, Mm -hmm. you know, be attentive to everything that you want, that it's, you know, all the ways that that can become labor or expectation or pressure can, that can really be dialed down. And then you can also take interesting forms of vicarious or intimate pleasure, right? Like there's that term compersion, but like getting to watch someone else enjoy something about another person and Mm -hmm. enjoy that, you know, like there are moments, like I just think that there are parts of yourself you can explore in a situation where there are more roles to take on voluntarily and take off and there are more combinatorial possibilities. That all makes a lot of sense to me. And I think Mm -hmm. that that can provide again, more stability. I think it can be really powerful to for relationships that involve forms of mentorship and care that are um, mm. intentional and consensual. We see their intimacy. And, and it's so interesting to me that they really are in a relationship because obviously that comes through. Like, I'm yeah. convinced. Like, I, there's real chemistry. I, yeah. I think the sex is actually, like, really well done one yeah. of the, the longest sex scene in the film which is just between two of them mm-hmm. i get i was like okay like yeah. i was really enjoying that like yeah, it was, that was beautiful. a fantastic scene it was really well done but one thing i was just so curious about i was like how do these people get together yes. like okay I, so yeah this is like how i feel about 
why I still think it's really interesting to hear how every queer person has come out and come into themselves Mm -hmm. because we live in a world where that's not the norm. So it's like, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you meet people? Like, how did you find your friends? How did you meet your lovers? Now that there's apps, it's like a little bit less interesting. But um, the coming out story, I feel like there's a way in which that could that like every thruple kind of has that too, because that's not the normative relationship form. And um, same with poly people, like in any relationship pattern. And so like that would have been a really, really interesting and fun part of the film to make, like, because it's it also seems clear that Laya and Marty have been together for a longer period of time. So like, Uh were they already poly when they met Anto? Like what? How did this come to be? I was like, I just want to know. This is no, I mean, I think that's, it was very difficult for me to, to quite figure out what the arrangement had been of the people had been before they, they became a, a thruple. And of course that is one of the most interesting, uh, dynamics, right? Like, I mean, in my case, I was with my partner, I think it was uh, eight years before we met, uh, Tristan, my third. And so that obviously raises a host of questions about like mm-hmm. how, do, how does how does a third person integrate into an existing relationship how do we create a new relationship mm-hmm. that is all of us together without trying to pretend like we can erase the before because yeah. that's not possible like all of those things are really fascinating questions and the movie the movie doesn't it, it only maybe gestures at that slightly like maybe not at all it was in it like at the very beginning in the in like the quickest way where you're like Mm. what did they even say where it was basically like the two catalan people like anto's like stop speaking catalan or whatever yeah yeah and like we're like oh okay like that could be an issue in this throuple but then the third person leaves and yeah 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 Okay, so maybe the film didn't answer all of my prayers, <laughs> but it definitely showed me that I was praying for the right thing. Because I want to see more of this. But, you know, as we always say about queer representation, hopefully it'll open the door to more and, and better thruple films to come. Yeah. And if listeners need an endorsement, like, it's hot. I don't regret the, you know, hour and a half I spent watching it. Listeners... Again, the film is called Petit Mal. You can find it wherever you rent your things on the internet. Um, and let us know what you think if you watch mm-hmm. it. Our email is outwardpodcast at slate.com. Or if you're in a thruple and want to talk about thruple things, please email us your thoughts. Brian will respond at outwardpodcast at slate.com. <laughs> <laughs> I will respond so quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. If you follow the news about drugs, or even just drugs themselves, you probably know that in recent years, psychedelics, substances like MDMA, psilocybin, or magic mushrooms, and ketamine, have been taken up by mainstream clinical psychology as powerful tools for treating a range of mental health issues like depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and PTSD. Patients with previously intractable challenges have seen almost miraculous results through controlled therapy with these, you know, recently criminalized and malign medicines. But where is the queer community, which both has a particular cultural history with psychedelics, as well as an increased risk for a host of mental health concerns, in all of this? How do our unique experiences intersect with psychedelic therapy, and is the emerging discipline attending to us in all the ways that it should? To help us understand this rapidly evolving landscape, uh, we're joined today by Dr. Alex Belser. Alex is a psychedelic researcher and licensed psychologist, and he's been at the forefront of this clinical psychedelic movement for more than 20 years. 
He's been an investigator on a number of clinical trials of psilocybin and MDMA to treat depression, anxiety, substance use, OCD, PTSD, and end-of-life distress. Uh, he is the founding president of Nautilus Sanctuary, which is the first nonprofit center for psychedelic medicine on the East Coast. And he serves there under this great title, the Chief Clinical Officer of Cybin. And he is also a member of the Chacruna Institute's Women, Gender, Diversity, and Sexual Minorities Working Group, where he works on issues affecting LGBTQI plus people. Alex is also, as of late last year, the co-editor and contributor to a groundbreaking anthology called Queering Psychedelics, From Oppression to Liberation in Psychedelic Medicine. We've been wanting to have him on the show for a long time now, and we're thrilled he could join us this month to take us on a trip, so to speak, <laughs> oh through, God, this, sorry, <laughs> through this fascinating and complicated field. Uh, Alex, <laughs> thank you for handling that pun, and thank you so much for being here. It's good to be your co-journeyer. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're really excited about this conversation. Um, so, so people can get a sense of who you are and as a starting place. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you became interested in psychedelics professionally, um, and then how that specific intersection with queer people became important to you. I was given a book called LSD Psychotherapy by a boy that I thought was really cute in my <laughs> freshman year of college. Aww. And I, you know, in being a nerd, I thought I'd read this, and it blew my mind. Uh, and then I kind of grew up in the 90s gay, queer, East Coast rave scene where people were taking MDMA as a matter of course and um, not taking alcohol as quite as much. It was a different mm. time. Um, and we've moved into a different sort of queer usage pattern with ketamine and other drugs, maybe even in the last 25 years or so. But so I was fascinated by psychedelics uh, and I had, you know, my own experiences. And then I started going to conferences and I started to realize, you know, this might be... Um, not only a thing, but a thing I could make uh, a career doing, which is working with medicines, what I see as sacred medicines, therapeutic medicines, like MDMA and psilocybin and DMT, uh, and using them therapeutically to, to work with people to foment reflection, transformation, um, change, uh, and also to hold space for whatever may come. So so mm. that's, that's where we've been at. You know, there's been a 50-year drug war since Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act, uh, psychedelics were associated with um, black radicals and underground, you know, anti-war protesters. Uh, and we see some of that language being used still today. We've been expecting a backlash, but in the last 15 years, major universities from NYU and UCLA to Hopkins and Imperial have come forward with clinic results that are promising. I think that in the psychedelic community, we're now at a place where we want to make clear that these are not panaceas mm -hmm. and attend to not just the usage that's happening in, you know, really highly supported clinical trial settings, but the, the, the iceberg of people that are using psychedelic drugs, medicines, and all sorts of use rituals and contexts um, in, the, in both the straight and queer communities. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I learned that I really didn't know about from from reading um, some of the book and some of your other writings is that the history of psychedelic culture and sort of research has been extremely homophobic and transphobic. I wonder if you could just take us for our listeners briefly through that history and, and to, to where we are now. 
Yeah, I, I was blown away by this. I had been going to psychedelic conferences for 15 years. I thought I knew more or less most of everything about psychedelic history. I mean, first of all, psychedelics were actually really common in med school in the 1950s and 60s. You know, uh, psychiatrists self-administered it as a way to help them understand their patient experiences better. There were thousands of people treated legally. Uh, the NIH-funded psychedelic <clears throat> trials. This was like a normal psychiatric practice before it got shut down. And what was also part of that practice was leaders in the psychedelic community uh, we, we hear a lot about things like LSD being used by MK Ultra, the CIA, in like coercive ways. It's like a mind control. We we hear about psychedelic uh, harms for sexual transgressions or abuses in the community, but no one told me, and I didn't learn until recently about the history of LSD and psychedelics like mescaline and, and psilocybin being used as conversion therapies. Mm -hmm. Wow! Right. And not just not just as outliers or by a few sort of random people, but by like literally the vanguard leadership. Timothy Leary said, "Quote: LSD is a specific cure for homosexuality." Um, Dr. Richard Alpert at Harvard, who later became the renowned Ram Dass and himself talked about being attracted to men, published two peer-reviewed case reports where he treated gay men in order to make them straight, to have satisfying sexual relationships with their women partners. Um, Hollywood Hospital, which treated Cary Grant and was a leading psychiatric hospital, um, like consistently did conversion therapy. There's accounts in the UK of um, a dozen lesbian and gay women being used um, uh, using psilocybin in a, in, in a hospital context to convert them. And there's terrifying, utterly terrifying accounts in France and in some other places of um, what are called sexual perverts and even uh, young adolescents as, mm. as young as like 16 being administered very extremely high doses of drugs like LSD uh, over and over and over again uh, through the idea that was informed by both dynamic therapy and by this idea of shock therapy that we would yeah. shock the ego, shock the psychological architecture of the individual which was sick and gay and which was still, according to the DSM, a diagnostic uh, pathology. We yeah. would shock that, break that down, and then build it back up again in the you know in the provider's image of what would constitute a healthy, normal person. And the harms are horrifying. And the worst part is that nobody talks about it. I mean, not even not even like psychedelic historians talk about it. It's mm -hmm. sort of swept under the rug. And and I I'll just end by saying that would be okay to some extent if there weren't lineages today that yeah. replicate yeah. gender binary through like a male-female diet in the room, if there weren't extraordinarily homophobic ayahuasca centers by leaders like Jacques Mabit who have like a homophobic theory about how ayahuasca can help you transcend your, your sexual orientation. I mean, there's, these things are replete in, um, you know, around the world uh, and I think in some ways in the clinic. You said male-female dyad, and I encountered that phrase, you know, in your book. Can you explain what that framework is and how it might affect, you know, queer or trans people getting therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea in psychedelic work, in good psychedelic work, is that you, you do m multiple sessions of preparation with the person who's going to take the medicine. You provide a good set and setting. There's a bond of trust and rapport. And you work with two people, right? And and, and there's a whole lineage of this. There's a, some evidence that the idea is that we wanted to add a second person to prevent 
sexual harm. The other thing is it's an eight-hour day, so people need to go to the bathroom or eat, take a break or eat lunch. So, so usually you're working with two therapists. And traditionally, there's been this idea of a, of a cisgender male-female diet. Uh, mm. Some of this may have been to prevent sexual harm, to have a woman in the room. And this is like literally some of the, the historical like mm-hmm. argumentation. But I think largely it's been um, coming out of a sort of sacred idea, this sort of construct of sacred masculinity and sacred femininity, mm-hmm. this sort of dynamic and analytic ideas of the um, mother uh, transference and the father object in the room, and that uh, there's a balance in the holding of that. And of course, this is instantiates the gender binary, and there's been like an ongoing vociferous discourse about it. And most organizations have moved towards a more, a more gender neutral and, and patient focused pairing, right? Like if the individual has a history of sexual violence perpetrated by a cisgender man, you may not pair them with two cisgender male therapists, for example. There might mm-hmm. be, be meaningful considerations. But, but, but there's this, this, this notion, and some of it like, per- permeates the sort of permafrost of the, of the, of the <laughs> movement. And uh, it's only really in the last few years that we even see that happening. And even um, bulletins that are being used in FDA trials right now say usually, quote, usually a man and a woman, which completely ignores trans and GNC non-binary experience. So yeah. it's, you know, we, we've made progress, but it, it's, a, it's a form of harm, and including to other forms of harm I'm sure you're all familiar with, which is like not asking for pronouns upon intake, not mm. using preferred names to identify people people when giving, you know, doing identification in the clinic or in the hospital. So yeah, it's, it's really frustrating. Well, I'm curious, like, you know, it's, it, you know, so much of the, the intervention point here is about intentionality and understanding, you know, given this history of harm, particularly this history of conversion therapy, how these substances can be used very differently, right? You know, one thing I, I really appreciate is that part of that intentionality is really kind of getting away from this, you know, maybe old school, but also very, like, you know, very kind of white guy belief that, like, the point of psychedelic experience is to transcend material difference, get mm-hmm. out of your body, escape who you are, right. become some sort of whatever, re-enchanted, everyone in the universe is the same, whatever, right? Which is just sort of, like, not that interesting for, you know, for queer people, trans people, people of color, you know, oppressed people like, yeah, no, I'm not trying to like transcend who I am. Who I am is like really where a lot of, you know, of the challenges I experience in the world stick, you know, they stick to that difference. And so- And also we're not all the same. And we're also not all the same. Yeah, like, great. You know, I remember, you know, years before I transitioned, I used to be so afraid of psychedelics because like, you know, like many people who don't want to deal with a a certain elephant in the Mm -hmm. room, I was like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to experience ego death because I'm very concerned about what's underneath that, right? And all, you know, and, and, but, you know, it's, it's interesting as someone who has subsequently after transitioning also sought different psychedelic therapies in a clinical context, I found that all of my fears were really misplaced um, in part because I also had this really stereotypical idea of what you would be doing that there would be this kind of like breaking down of the self. Um, and I was like, well, but I myself already feels so fragile and weak. Mm. Why would I want to break it down? And that's not at all right. Um, 
what's what's at stake but i'm so sort of curious like particularly for queer people for trans people exploring gender and sexuality but also dealing with the impact say like you know what what we call like the minority stress model you know the kinds of wear and tear on the body and the psyche from experiencing structural you know discrimination or racism or you know inequity in the labor market or whatever i mean how how does that sort of how do we affirm it? How do you affirmatively go and explore those things? Sort of what is the process there that's actually about um, helping people build up who they are or explore who they are or enjoy who they are rather than kind of like, you know, shoot a rocket into, into the, I mean, look, yeah, I've done ketamine yeah. therapy. The rocket has sailed sometimes let me, let me, in my recollection, but, but you know what I mean? I'm just sort of curious. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. a really, a really common misunderstanding and there's something really particularly powerful for LGBT folks about this particular like yeah. modality. So would love to hear you tell us, yeah, a little bit more about that. One of the authors in Queering Psychedelics, our, our edited book, uh, writes about their experience as a person who's both queer and then also transitioning and trans. They talk about their experience um, in um, like an LGBTQ affirming psychotherapy that's also mm-hmm. psychedelic uh, affirming. And they said, you know, through psilocybin and integrating it, they 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 came to realize that it was not me who was fucked up. It's the world that's mm. fucked up. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the possibility for a liberatory uh, understanding of the the self and, and, and the idea of like ego breaking the ego or like harming the ego or like dismantling the ego is is complicated as to what that means. Mm-hmm. I, I think that actually I prefer egolytic. You know, the, the ego, there's a mm. some of the harsher, rigid ideas about who we are can become mm. more imaginative, more mm. liminal, more connected to one another, to space and time, to the objects in the room. There, I want to just go back to what you started with, which is this idea, I think, and I'll, and I'll paint it in with broad brushstrokes just to sort of caricature it. But there's this idea, if you were to ask me, how do psychedelics help? Like, why do they work in clinical mm-hmm. studies? And one of the answers is that people have a, a mystical experience, a mystical mm-hmm. experience questionnaire. And I give a talk on, on this, but the basic idea is that this is a questionnaire that's pulled out of the theology literature, and it's really focused on this idea of, um, a, a transcendent experience of the void, of, of nothingness. Mm. It's sort of like the lone, mm. isolated man, person on the mountaintop, ex- having an encounter, like not even beyond the, beyond the Godhead. Uh, it comes out of Christian mysticism and Vaita Vedanta. And so the idea of spirituality and like where you're going, like the latter spirituality, is that all other experiences are marginal mm. experiences. Mm. So you know, um, shamanic or natural mystical experience of the elements or of animals, uh, of meetings with dead ancestors, of uh, relational experiences, uh, feminist ideas and queer theory ideas of experiencing the real in relationship, Mm. in circle rather than uh, Mm. through transcending relationship, Mm. uh, notions of um, identity that's like a deepening of one's identity rather than an escape from that identity. Um, and even spiritual or religious mystical ideas of playfulness and political action coming out of the plague years, like all that is informed by a sort of polymorphous queer spirituality that we see like time and time again, like all of that is, is kind of ignored, you know, it's like seen as like lesser, if the vision has sound, sight and taste, it's like of a lesser quality, it needs to be beyond the body. Mm. And so 
I think that the queer psychedelic experience in my research and talking with people is 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 embodied. It is playful. It can be political. It can be. Uh, it can have a criticalist dialogue around systemic issues of power, like in the room and in one's lived mm-hmm. experience. And that that seems far richer. And I don't want to. Mysticism is not one. It seems to be many. And 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 and, and those experiences are. are profound and beautiful and oftentimes terrifying and scary and need mm-hmm. we need to like learn how to support one another in better ways mm. it's so interesting to hear you speak because you're bringing a lot of sort of community knowledge and experience and um uh frameworks paradigms into what is clinical psychology right like is there have you i'm sure you have but like encountered resistance from the sort of science side of your work to including those things because it's 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 a bit surprising to hear some of the phrases that you're saying right now in that context so i wonder about the tension there well there's a huge tension in the production of knowledge and how yeah how knowledge is funded and paid for so most psychedelic studies to date have been funded through like charitable philanthropy like mm. wealthy people giving millions of dollars to fund it because up until last year, the government wasn't funding anything. And even now, they're only funding like a very limited set or from VC capital and sort of like corporate mm. uh, actors. And and that's all really about a particular epistemic domain, which is, you know, like, let's create let's create a study that leads to symptom reduction. And, I, mm. I, and as a psychologist, I love to see people's depression scores coming down, anxiety scores coming down, people remitting from years of PTSD, people in my trial with a team at Yale, getting much better for their obsessional and compulsive behaviors. All of that's wonderful. Right. But it's really in a re- reductive medical model that attends to neuropsychopharmacology and outcome. And when you look at like mm. why that's happening, if, and in my research, I focused on interviewing people in depth. Right. What's going on? What did you see? What happened for you? What did you feel? Who, what was, who was there? Um, how do you make sense of what happened for you? Those accounts of, from patients in these trials are really, really varied. Like not one thing happens. There's multiple arcs of healing and there's no money to really create knowledge. So the whole Mm. EBT evidence-based therapy, EBP evidence-based practice domain says, well, there's not really evidence to suggest that a psychological experience of like greater relationship is a mediator of outcome uh-huh. or of, of, uh-huh. of, of, a, of, a play, of a playful reclamation of your body is a mediator of benefit because we actually don't formally study that, you know, and, and for right. the same, the same for sexual and gender diverse populations mm-hmm. and BIPOC and other, you know, social location populations in clinical research, which is that, you know, you're running a study with 30 people or a hundred people and nobody, you're not really, except for a few minor exceptions, you're not designing trials that are LGBTQ affirming from the get go mm-hmm. of by and for designed of by and for like John Pachankis's research at Yale, queer folks, uh, and then if you you have a hard enough time getting people in the door to recruit them into the, these trials and get them you know well 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 through, and then people aren't publishing, they're not collecting LGBTQ data at all, right? And then they're not reporting on it in subgroup analyses and or meta analyses, which is just like t- statistical speak for saying we don't know. And this is the problem in med- medicine. Like yeah. we the, 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 the traditional argument is that when studies were done with men, you know, first in man used to be first in man rather than first in human trials. We didn't know if there were adverse effects or if it worked as well for people right. who were not cisgender men. Right. Uh, the same is happening today 
but with LGBTQ mm. people, because of sexual mm. and gender minority stress processes and other racial minority stress processes and intersectional stress yeah. processes, like we actually don't know, like we know that these populations that our people endure, as you as you said, higher rates and levels of stress and then internalized shame and internalized homophobia, for example. And we think that psychedelics may be helpful. And in fact, some people are actually using psychedelics in like ketamine and, and, and affirming ways to, to disinter that internalized shame and sort mm. of, um, harmful internal processes. Uh, but we, we don't have the money uh, and there's not systemic funding to like adequately right. fund it to, to the standard that many people would be asking for yet. Yeah. I know this is a little bit possibly outside the realm of your research, but I did want to talk a little bit about psychedelics outside the clinical context. And mm -hmm. we know that, you know, in queer party scenes and social circles, queers have often been like at the vanguard of like whatever the new trendy psychedelic is. Um, we actually read a piece or Brian shared a piece with us from Rolling Stone called Does the Queer Scene Have a Ketamine Problem? about the proliferation of ketamine in queer spaces, making it harder sometimes to identify when somebody is actually, you know, using ketamine in destructive ways and, and downplaying it like side effects or um, symptoms of addiction. And I'm wondering if like how you view, you know, as somebody who studies psychedelics in a clinical context, how do you view the, the role that psychedelics have in queer party spaces and and do you think people are using these drugs in similar ways in in therapeutic and sort of social circles or 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 do you see them as completely separate I'll just open by saying the most dangerous drugs are are alcohol tobacco crystal meth in the opioid crisis. I mean, more people have died every year in the opioid crisis than died during the height of the HIV AIDS plague years mm -hmm. for the last handful of years. This is including, of course, queer folks. That being said, um, you know, with alcohol, we have, we have as a culture, developed risk mitigation, risk reduction, risk reduction, mm. benefit maximization rituals, which mm. is that, you know, not mm. just the, not just like seatbelts and designated driver things, but like when you're in college and somebody's really drunk, like people take care of that person generally. Mm. And there's also all sorts of, you know, communal wisdom about how much you should drink and not drink. And we, we know about how much a glass of wine is. All, like there's a thousand ways in which we have mitigated mm. harm from this extremely dangerous drug that is, that is um, uh, normative and dominant. For ketamine um, and for uh, psychedelic drugs generally, like yes, the, the, I think that LGBTQ folks are kind of at, at the vanguard. I mean, they, they they tend to have both higher uses of drug use, which can be positive and negative. Um, but the way in which we, as a community, create rituals to mm. m m minimize harm and maximize benefit, kind of catch up over time, mm. and we we learn as we go along. You know, one of the things is like ketamine is actually a wonder drug. It's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It's mm. the it was it, it synthesized by Park Davis in the 1960s. It's the it's still the most widely used human anesthetic in the world. All of the derogatory language about horse tranquilizer, that kind of thing is is drug war nonsense. It is used in veterinary medicine, but it's on every it's going to find it on every crash cart in ambulances in the United States. It's used in developing low and middle income countries. Uh, it's great because it doesn't depress you know, for anesthesia people's heart rate and, and and their ability to breathe. And so you can, you know, people can administer it 
in the field in Vietnam, they would get, be giving people syringes mm-hmm. preloaded with ketamine so right. that they could get that person back and alive to the helicopter to the, mm. to the hospital because it, it wasn't going to kill them. It was actually relatively safe. All that being said, and I think there are a lot of ways in which we can do do better. I mean, like the MDMA rave scene in the 90s that I grew up in, like there were rituals uh, right. of, of some, some better use, right? And even things like chill spaces, drug testing mm-hmm. on site, you know, all of that is extant today. People are still doing that. And I grew up where people were taking MDMA and dancing, like a lot. And now when people take ketamine... There's, they're dancing, but it looks totally different because, yeah. you know, <laughs> it, it, you know it, it, and I know that they're having a, 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 it seems like a beautiful experience inside, but they're not as uh, agile. Outwardly. Or, mm-hmm. it, yeah. you know, yeah. If you take enough of it, you want to sit down or lie down. Um, mm-hmm. And and actually, that's when we use it therapeutically, this dreaded K-hole, for example, which is this idea that you've taken too much and then you're non-responsive or sort of internal, um, uh, it, you know, is actually... Pro-therapeutic. I mean, many clinics intentionally give enough so that you're lying down in a beautiful setting with a supportive team, with music, and your intention is to go inward. And um, the K-hole is actually where you you go inward deep enough to, to, to see something that's truly psychedelic and not just at a low-dose level. The problem in the community is that that happens in the hallway, right? Like somebody, oh, right, somebody right, doesn't know what they're taking. And we see yeah. this this issue of dosage efficacy with dangerous drugs like heroin, where like the amount that you take versus the lethal dose is quite, the ratio, the therapeutic efficacy ratio is quite low. We see this with GHB, which is like people take too much. Uh, Ketamine's a little bit more forgiving here, thank goodness. Um, And the vast majority of people take, I think, you know, take ketamine in, in ways that are fun, you know, recreationally and can be sacred or intentional. Uh, the risk for addictive potential it does exist. And I think that, you know, as queer folks, as the LGBT community has a higher risk at baseline for problematic alcohol and substance use um, mm, yeah. in order to compensate yeah. for all of the sexual and gender minority stressors that they're subjected to over the course of one's life. So uh, so ketamine oftentimes provides a reprieve. It is not nearly as addictive as nicotine or alcohol or opioids and most people the vast majority of people do just fine with occasional ketamine use without any habit forming potential uh, but some people do have habit forming potential and uh, that's where we can do better to, to take care of yeah. one another yeah hmm. i wonder if as a, a sort of place to to end um we could talk you, you could give us just a little bit of a word about um one of the overarching ideas of the book which is that psychedelics and psychedelic treatment for queer people has a uh, liberatory potential or radical potential, not just this medicalized thing that we've been talking about, but actually something like Jules is saying political, like, like bigger than that. Uh, Just leave us with a little thought about what you, what you mean by that and what, what are you looking forward to? I don't know that we really fully comprehend the extent of what psychedelics are, how they work, what they do, what the meaning of it is in our medical and our, community and our queer cultures, whether it's a retreat in Costa Rica or a party in Bushwick or, you know, our clinical trial at NYU at Bellevue Hospital. We don't fully understand what is happening yet. And as queer folks, um, I think that the idea that psychedelics would be used intentionally or constructed in in social medical constructs to be, um, to instantiate a dominant paradigm of power like through conversion therapy, like through MKUltra, or in more subtle ways, which is just like, 
let's just make people get better so they can go back to work and not, you know, have a, a, a collective care understanding of their yeah. entire ecosystem and lives. Uh, we need to work in a frame which is empowering, which is recognizing this, the relationships that those people are in, in their homes and workplaces. And so, you know, the word querying harkens back to like less of an equality paradigm and more of a liberatory paradigm yeah, for yeah. a vision for how we own our own destinies and how we collectively uh, empower one one another. And I think that the potential for psychedelics it has yet to be fully explored. I mean, we're doing it in a conference called Queering Psychedelics coming up. And we, if you're interested, read the book. But, you know, honestly, like the book is unwritten and some of it's been lost. Mm. So mm. I'm excited to, to see where it goes. That's a wonderful note to end on. Alex, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I think you've given us and our listeners like a ton to think about. I just want to uh, remind our listeners that the, the title of the book, if you want to check it out, is Queering Psychedelics from Oppression to Liberation in Psychedelic Medicine. Alex, is there somewhere that folks could sort of follow you to keep up with, with your work um, on social media or elsewhere? Yeah, they can, my website, alexbelser.com and I'm on, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and things like that. Yeah, thank you. It's been so lovely to talk with you all. Well, that's about it for this month. But before we go, we've got your monthly updates to the gay agenda. Christina, what gay agenda item do you have for us this month? I think you should all watch After Sun. It is a Scottish film by the Trey Cute and queer writer-director Charlotte Wells. You don't need my recommendation to see it. It is one of the most highly acclaimed films of 2022. It's already won a bunch of awards, and I'm sure you'll hear about it soon if you haven't already. But I wanted to give special applause to the queerness of the film. It's about a young father and his 11-year-old girl. They're on vacation together mm -hmm. at a kind of chintzy beach resort in Turkey. The gist of it is that it's this girl's memories. Like, it's, it's you know, this happened 20 years ago. It's her memories from her vacation with her dad, who's divorced from her mom. It's clear he's having a hard time in his life, but... It's, it's filmed kind of from the child's perspective. So she just gets mm. these little glimpses into his personal pain. Occasionally you mm. see him when she doesn't. It's also about her like on the verge of adolescence. She's really closely observing these older teens and the way they interact and kind of testing out who she might be and what attraction means and what she likes in other people. Mm. Um, it is such a subtle film that in contrast to the other film we talked about is just so says what it has to say so clearly and beautifully. Mm. And it just brought me right back to those moments of being a tween when you're out in the world in a new place, surrounded by people who are kind of giving you different ideas of what your future might be. Um, mm. And you're kind of imagining yourself into young adulthood. I don't want to ruin too much of what happens, but it's, you know, again, a very like lightly but clearly queer story. Mm. Um, and it's the first feature from Charlotte Wells, by the way, who told the LA Times, my characters are always going to be queer by default. The stories I'm interested in telling are my experience in the world. So yeah. good for her for making Work. this incredible film. I cannot wait to see what she does next. And you guys are missing out if you don't watch it. Well, Brian, what have you got for us? 
I have a uh, recommendation that is uh, actually sort of tied or apropos to our uh, chat with Alex, uh, Dr. Alex Pulser. I'm recommending that our listeners read up on Charles Silverstein, Mm -hmm. um, who just passed away at the age of 87. He was a psychologist, a writer, and a a gay activist pioneer. He was most famous for speaking out at the 1973 American Psychological Association meeting that ultimately led to homosexuality being declassified as a mental disorder. He also collaborated with Edmund White on The Joy of Gay Sex uh, in 1977, which uh, is a book that explained how gay male intimacy works to like a whole generation of people. Uh, he was a founding editor of the Journal of Homosexuality. He wrote a lot about, uh, sort of in a psychological context, about relationships between parents and gay children, um, about therapy with queer clients, other things like that. And he remained a really keen observer of society's relationship to queer people up until the end of his life, um, I just wanted to read a quick thing from uh, the New York Times obit. He wrote in his uh, a revised issue of his memoir that, quote, there are still religious groups that claim they can cure us. State legislatures often vote on bills to take away our rights and make no mistake, most Americans would like to do just that. Most LGBT groups, he said, have become service-oriented and have to keep their noses clean and issue politics. It has led to a listlessness in the LGBT movement one wonders whether to call it a movement any longer. Damn. So uh, tough, and I think right, uh, correct words uh, from this this uh, this uh, pioneer. So if you didn't know about Charles Silverstein before, definitely go check him out. There's a lot of great obits and remembrances around to, to learn more. Jules, what do you have? Yeah, well, so, you know, I know actually Valentine's Day is not like, you know, everyone's cup of tea. And, you know, thankfully there's, perhaps a far more important thing that is February, which is it's Black History Month. Um, You know, especially in this moment when certain uh, governors with fascistic tendencies are gutting um, AP African American Studies. But um, that's not my suggestion. My suggestion is a book, (laughs) not a book that came out now, but a book that might be a really fabulous um, Black History Month read for listeners. It's um, Saidiya Hartman's book uh, from a couple of years ago, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval. Yeah, selfishly, it's on my mind because I'm teaching from it this mm. semester, but it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just one of the most amazing books. Saidiya Hartman is a scholar, but this is like a trade book that was written for everyone, so you do not have to be in my classroom to be to be reading it. It's this beautiful set of portraits of, um, yeah, of young Black women and girls from sort of the late 19th, um, early 20th century period. Uh, you know, a time period where historians have basically just ignored Black girls and women as social actors really assumed that their lives were just difficult, you know, kind of sad and put down, Um, but really underplayed the fascinating connections and spirit that they had. Hartman sees them as kind of rebellious people um, trying to claim and find ways and improvise forms of freedom under really difficult circumstances, not just a kind of height of white supremacist Jim Crow, but also just the tumult of living, you know, in um, segregated black neighborhoods in northern cities. And she really leans into relationships between women. You know, this is actually, you know, we often forget especially the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, are a high tide for, for gay people. Like, everybody's pretty mm-hmm. gay during those decades. Um, and, you know, young Black women's relationships are this really fascinating portal to think about kind of the intimacy and just, like, vividness 
of history, like bring it to life. And she has this beautiful mode of narration where you're just kind of moving through these city spaces and like following these relationships that are amazing, Mm. you know, pictures of girls in love from the, you know, from the 20s and the 30s. It's really just a beautiful, stunning kind of tapestry. Um, Just an absolutely fabulous book where you also get to really get a very different perspective on sort of a, you know, a black feminist and kind of black queer uh, inflection for Black History Month. So, you know, it's been out for a while. Probably lots of listeners have heard of this. But if, if you haven't had the chance to pick up um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, I highly mm. recommend it. It's a, it's a beautiful way to spend um, a little more of your February. What a great recommendation. I love that. I always got books. I got books for days to recommend. (laughs) Our smart one. (laughs) Well, sadly, this brings us to the end of our episode for this month. But, you know, as always, we really encourage you to send us feedback uh, or topic ideas or just drop us a line. Tell us how much you love us. You can write (laughs) to outwardpodcast at slate.com or you can find us over at Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. And just a reminder, if you join Slate Plus, you'll get some ad-free, well, not just some, you'll get all ad-free podcast extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to slate.com slash Outward Plus. June Thomas is our producer and the secret psychedelic sauce that boosts our serotonin. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Tell your thruffles about it. And rate and review the show so others can find it too. We'll miss you, but we'll be back in your feeds on March 15th. Bye, Christina. Bye, Brian. Bye, Julie. Bye. gay, everybody. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.